Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about an inspiring scene from yesterday's NASCAR event. And then we're going to talk to author T.J. Stevens, author of a new book, Once a Shooter, Redemption of a High School Gunman. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online, 1160hope.com. And get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Grateful for those of you uh, who do that? Ian, are you outside today? Are you are you in the treehouse today? Basement? I always like to know where you are when we start these shows. Well, I'm not going to tell you then. Oh man, just no. keep keep you guessing. Make it a make it a little <laughs> game throughout the day. You just keep keep guessing my location. I might not even be at home. I might have set up at a, at a Starbucks. I could be at a. Wendy's drive-in. Who knows? Who knows? That would be the best if you were just driving around. <laughs> I don't think I. I mean, that's challenge accepted, Brian. I'm going to make that happen one of these days. I drive a stick shift, so that might be a little difficult to <laughs> drive and shift and read the articles and say words. That might be tough. Interesting uh, little tidbit about myself that may cause you to lose respect for a little more respect for me. Oh, no. I do not know how to drive a stick shift. I cannot do it. At least tell me that you learned and then you forgot how to because you haven't used one in a while. There was a very brief point where I like learned for the span of like two weeks because I was helping somebody like move their car from one spot to like uh, across country or something. So they needed me to be able to drive. And since that day, I've never driven a stick shift. So I wish I did. I wish I knew how, but I I do not know. They don't really make them anymore. I mean, I got I got a bunch of money off of my car because it's a stick shift. Also because it's purple, but mostly because of the stick shift. (laughs) Nobody wanted it. And I thought that's that's my car. Uh, well, here's a here's a radio professional segue right here. Speaking of stick shifts, did you see the NASCAR event yesterday? Wow, <laughs> it wow. really was uh, a a uh, fascinating scene. So let me just paint the picture for people who maybe haven't seen it. I believe you posted about it yesterday. I could be mm-hmm. wrong, but mm-hmm. I'm sure right I about that. Uh, so I'd love to just uh, let me paint the picture, and then you can kind of give your feedback about it. So it, it was birthed out of a really uh, a really dark event that happened. If you know anything about NASCAR, there is one driver on the NASCAR circuit who is an African American man by the name of Bubba Wallace. So he's the only NASCAR um, African American driver. Uh, drives for Richard Petty Racing. And at the same time, NASCAR has been going through this whole kind of uh, shift right now where a week or two ago, they banned the Confederate flag. And if you know anything about NASCAR, the Confederate flag does play kind of a big cultural um, role within the NASCAR community. And so this was a really big deal. Uh, And so Bubba Wallace, uh, the only African-American NASCAR driver, came into his garage at Talladega, where the event was this past weekend or yesterday, uh, and he went into his garage where his car is, and uh, there was a noose hanging there. And I mean, this is as dark as it gets, and as as detestable awful. as you can think, right? And so, uh, just picture the scene. And so, this rightfully so just kind of blew up. And Bubba Wallace has shown so much. Um, I don't even know what word to use. He's been really impressive through all of this. And uh, so, a lot of people were thinking, well, what's going to happen at the NASCAR event then yesterday? 
Uh, and it was interesting. It wasn't even something that NASCAR said, we're going to do this. It was just the drivers. They started a group text and they decided that before the event, they were all going to get out of their cars, all of the crew, everybody with Bubba Wallace in his car. And they were going to come and push his car with him in it to the front of the line, basically. And everybody stand behind him. Mm-hmm. And the picture of this uh, it was it was a picture of support, of unity, of we're in this together. Uh, this picture was so powerful. And the words that Bubba Wallace used were so powerful. And he ended up coming in 14th. Uh, the craziest thing about NASCAR events is he came in 14th and was 0.3 seconds out of first place. Um, but the NASCAR, the, the actual race kind of paled in comparison to everything that happened before. So that's all of the background. And I know you posted about it, but it was a really uh, kind of a uh, powerful scene, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, pretty much all I posted was something like, I can't believe I'm saying this, but church, I hope that we're learning from NASCAR today. Like it, just, <laughs> it felt like one, I never thought that would be something that I would type or think or say, but two, right. I mean, again, you mentioned it too. Like, we didn't want to play the audio because it doesn't it doesn't really have the same impact. You should go and watch the video. It's posted on our Facebook page. Yes. I watched it a number of times. There was just something about it. And again, you know, much to your point yesterday, like, is some of it maybe a little pandering or a little placate? I mean, maybe. But the, the act of, like, support and solidarity in the face of something that dark and that awful, to me, was a like a just a really beautiful moment, especially amidst all of the the bad news and the scary news and the fighting and the division. It felt like, okay, this this is a pretty beautiful moment in time. Yeah, and and you and I had a talk yesterday, right? About um, you didn't like, like you have said, a talk like you were scolding me or something. <laughs> we, we, we had to have a talk, young man, right? About uh, you know. Is there are there times in this where you get skeptical by what organizations do? Like for me, if NASCAR had said, "Okay, I want everybody to get out of their cars, and then we're all going to march, and we're going to," but the fact that it was the drivers who said, and the crew people who said, "We're going to do this for our friend and our teammate," yeah, and then they got behind him, and it was just such a powerful scene because that's no small number of people. Once you take the drivers and all of their crew, and they're all marching just behind his car. And he got out and just started weeping. Uh, he just started crying. Yeah. And he called it the most powerful moment or thing of his life. And, you know, they're, the people who marched behind him on some level took a risk because, as I said, the NASCAR, um, there's a subculture to NASCAR that uh, has had some racist overtones over the years, the Confederate flag and other things. Um, hence, uh so for them to get out and be like, nope, we're, we're behind you and we are going to uh, we're going to support you no matter what. It might seem like the obvious move, but it didn't come without some risk. And it gets to what you and I talked about yesterday, like going forward. What does it look like specifically uh, for white churches, organizations or just individuals to remain in this fight, to remain allies. And I thought, like you said, the church or all of us can really learn from what NASCAR did yesterday, standing behind their friend and going, uh, we're in this with you. Yeah. And I wonder too, uh, you may, you maybe are more in tune to what some of the, like, has there been any pushback to this? Have you seen any counter narratives or anyone, you know, on Twitter, Facebook, that's upset by this? Has, has there been any yin to this yang at all? 
Uh, I'm guessing in the, this is sound funny in the more underground NASCAR community. That is, I'm sure there will be some, but no, right now it's just being celebrated, but let's be honest. The FBI is investigating right now right. as to how that noose got in there because His access was uh, really limited, right? It's so limited that it very well might have been someone who was marching with him yesterday who did it. <laughs> so Yikes. that remains to be seen in terms of video. And, you know, you get the FBI and hopefully it will get taken care of. And NASCAR has already come out and said that uh, if and when it's found, they said they have no suspects. But if and when it's found out who did it, that person will categorically, without question, be kicked out of NASCAR for life. And so, um, you know, we'll see what happens when that's found out. And so, as Ian said, I would encourage you to watch the video. It's up at our Facebook page, just because it's a really powerful picture. And like your Facebook post said or your Twitter post, the church can learn from this from NASCAR uh, is both humorous, but also true in this situation. So Mm -hmm. uh Coming up next, we're going to talk to the author of a new book that comes out today called Once a Shooter, Redemption of a High School Gunman. That author's name is TJ Stevens, and he is going to join us next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're grateful for you joining us today. We're really thrilled to have our next guest with us. He has a book coming out just today called Once a Shooter, Redemption of a High School Gunman. His name is TJ Stevens. TJ, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Brian. Absolutely. Why don't you uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll dive into the book. So I am uh, 55 years old, I'm currently uh, a concert promoter for Christian concerts here in the Eastern coast area um, to help benefit teenagers and other organizations um, from children with cancer to homeless shelters. Um, That's my passion right now is to help others in a, Mm. in a, in a very mighty, mighty way. Mm. Um, It's been very rewarding to do that. And I'm also a business owner. I I own a, a networking company. Um, and I have been uh, blessed with two beautiful kids and five grand hmm. grandchildren, and one of which, one of my my son, is a United States Marine, and I'm so very proud of him. He's he's definitely uh, everything I could ever dream of. That's awesome. That's fantastic. All right. So Brian mentioned the book is called "Once a Shooter: Redemption of a High School Gunman," which I imagine the the title alone tells you a lot about the book, but would you just kind of give us a brief overview before we get into the weeds a little bit? What's the book about and, and maybe what's your hope for the book? Sure. So yeah, this story, this is a journey about death to life. Hmm. And what I mean by that is um, walking into a school with a high powered rifle to kill as many people as you can. Uh, you are already dead. Hmm. Okay. You have already conceded to death. And you made that choice. There's no um, excuses that you can look back and say, this person made me do it, or even saying the devil made me do it. You know, you have the, the, the voice of Satan within you. If you welcome him in, he'll gladly walk you through the process. <laughs> and in the book, I actually talk about how that came to be um, the night before the sheet or the night before the actual incident. Uh, the goal was actually suicide. That, that was the, uh, the ultimate goal for me, was taking my own life. Uh, 
as 137 kids a day do in our country today mm. with 48,000 total per year. Mm. So I was just going to be another statistic at that point. But when getting to the point of uh, putting a gun in my mouth and the pressure on the trigger in a dark, dark room mm. down on my knees, um, you know, at that point is when you conceded to death and you're already dead. And that's when the inner voices that from the darkness speak in you and say, hey, you really want to do some pain. You really want to go down and, and really do this the right way. Do it my way and I'll give you the peace you're looking for. Mm. And so uh, from that moment on, um, it, from that moment on, everything is now you are just flesh. Um conceding to a a dark uh, lie okay and you become the coward you become the fool you become the tool that he wants you to destroy as many people in the process hmm. um, and so I, I would just have to say you have to go back to the book and actually see and to understand more of uh, my emotions and my uh, spiritual uh, encounter with darkness at that point Hmm. TJ, I'm wondering what was going on in your life at that specific time that, that led you to that point. I think that'd be really helpful for some people out there to hear. Sure. Um, you know, it's not something somebody just gets up one morning and says, you know, I think I'm going to go do something like this. It doesn't happen that way. This is something that culminates over a period of time of years. Hmm. Uh, and my thought process is that, um, uh, the, the seven mile abyss in the ocean, uh, how the mountain starts at the very bottom of pain and it continues up towards the top of the ocean. And when it gets up to the very top and crest of the ocean and you see nothing but a little mountain there, the littlest of things can trigger all that pain. It looks like a domino effect. Everything, um, comes crashing down. It's like you, 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 um, no longer have a desire to live. You have, you, you're lost for hope. Mm. You have no purpose. Uh, you look at yourself in, in disgust mm. um, and see it's all the lies from Satan again. Um, but as a child, you don't recognize these things. All right. you see is how you're going to handle life at this point. Now, my background is of a, a domestic abuse. Um, a lot of things happened uh, with a stepfather involved. And uh, I won't go in detail, but in the book I do go in mm. deep detail of mm. all those things. And um, so, again, these are just the red flags. You get recluse. You don't talk to anybody. Uh, you're very um, – you, you act out, fights. You're a bully. You're all these things. Uh, but eventually you are going to snap. Mm. And, and, you know, it's, it's more of a cry out for help. Yeah. Mm. You know, being 55 now, I look back and, you know, if I could say something to my younger self, I would definitely look back and say, man, you need to understand you are loved. You are loved more than you can imagine. Mm -hmm. If I could show my younger self, my two children and my five grandchildren, say, this is what you have to look forward to. If you choose Christ. Mm. But if you choose the path you're looking at, you're looking at eternity and hell. Mm. And so for me to have that opportunity is a gift itself mm. because I shouldn't be talking to you on this phone today. I should be in that gray. Mm. Okay. So, so every breath I take is a gift from God. Right. So I don't waste it and think about what it could have should have. I always think about 
how can I continue to serve him in a mighty way? Hmm. You, you mentioned in the book that something pretty miraculous happened actually during the hostage situation itself. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, after being in the school for about uh, nine, 10 hours on the first day, because it was a two-day ordeal, it was about 12, 31 o'clock in the morning. And I finally got to the point where uh, those voices that I heard the night before in my bedroom uh, that were making these deals with me uh, to give me that peace. Now there were many of them, many voices telling me we had a deal. You need to take these people out. You know, you're not living, you're not doing what you, you were supposed to do. You're not living your side of the deal. And I finally got to the point where I said, no, I'm not going to let you. And here, here I am talking for them to sit there and look at me physically. I'm mm. talking to nobody. Mm. But for me, I'm talking to an entire legion of darkness, of dark, of, of, of whatever you might call them, demons or whatever you want to call them within. Uh, I wasn't on drugs. I wasn't on alcohol. I, I didn't take any kind of medication or anything like that. I was on rage. Mm-hmm. And so I got down on my knees in front of these souls. Um, and they watched me put that gun in my mouth. Like, um, Sorry, I got to relive it to tell you, but I got down on my knees and put mm. the gun in my mouth, butter the rifle on the floor, put my thumb on the trigger. Wow. And at that moment, a lady over to the right felt her knee and started screaming, No, don't do this. You're just a kid. You haven't killed anybody. You haven't hurt anybody. Wow. All you've done is hurt yourself because blood was all over the room. It was my blood where I was smashing out windows early and all kinds. Of wow. And shot up, shot up the room and, and whatnot. And she screamed for my life. And I, you know, a, a person like that, why would she scream for my life? And I jerked over with the barrel still in my mouth. And um, all of a sudden, something from her neck was piercing my right eye. And I jerked over and I looked down and it was a gold cross reflecting off the light of the ceiling, hitting my right eye. Well, TJ, we're really grateful uh, for to hear your story. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and hear more of the story from TJ Stevens next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. We're grateful to continue to be joined by TJ Stevens. He has a new book out today called Once a Shooter, Redemption of a High School Gunman. TJ, why don't you continue with your fascinating story for us? When that cross confronted me, confronted the sin within me, what it did at that moment, at that moment, something miraculous took place in that room. Mm-hmm. And I immediately, it felt like I just got so angry at this lady. And I said, get out now. And she got up, ran out of the room, at, the, at which point, again, I'm on my road to Damascus moment now. And I'm <laughs> dealing with the entire darkness around me. And there was this, this arm with a white robe all the way up to the elbow and the hand reached for me in my darkness and it wouldn't grab me. It just waited for me to reach for it. And at which point I reached up with no other hole, nothing but death before me. I reached up and touched the tip of the fingers of this hand. I believe it was the hand of an angel. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that point, everything, the, the waves, the hundred foot waves went down to a golden pond. My eyes could see, my ears could hear, I became human again. If that makes you can understand that. Yeah. I, I could sense feeling and emotion and the pain they were going through and their families must be going through it. It was just like a revelation right there on the spot of just this uh, 
a hush, peace be still kind of moment in, in, at that moment. Wow. And at that, for the next seven hours, every hour I released two hostages for ice cream, pizza, another one for another hour later for, for coffee. And I was looking for excuses to let them go. Hmm. And I knew when I got to the end, when I got to the last hostage, that my life was over. But I deserved it. I deserved hmm. that. Hmm. So I got to the last person and the teacher looked at me and said, I know what you're doing. And I looked at her and I said, what do you mean? She says, I know you're, you're going to let me go and you're going to do a suicide by cop. And I looked at her and I didn't say yes or no to her. I just said, I deserve this. You don't. Please, you have to leave. And I, I thank God for her. She was my she was my physical angel in that room that day. Oh, wow. And uh, she wouldn't leave. And finally I said, okay, at that point, I was so lost of blood. I was so weak that I could barely even stand up mm. on the second day. And she held on to me as we walked out into the firing squad, SWAT team. And she held on to me so they wouldn't shoot. And, uh, and then a miraculous thing took place right at that moment. And you can read more about it in the book. Yeah. That just transformed the entire pivoting moment is at that moment that I just explained to you and what happened when she walked out with me, holding me so close and so tight. Mm. But that journey from that moment, obviously I'm talking to you, so I lived mm. through it. Yeah. <laughs> that journey, that light continued to carry into um, becoming, I'm sitting in a maximum security prison facing 144 years, right? And I was screaming for death. I wanted execution. You know, woe is me kind of mentality. I found the piece I'm looking for. I had no clue who it was, where it was, where it came from. But I have that piece now, and I'm ready to die. Mm-hmm. Now I'm really ready to die. And, and I'm, I'm sitting in Mecklenburg Maximum Security Prison, 23 in, one hour out. And you go in this cage, you can see the ceiling. And I go back, and I'm in my cell about 1 in the morning. I got up, lights out, wasn't supposed to. And the moon was shining bright that night, shining down on myself. And this is about a year and a half after I'm in prison. And I get down on my knees and I grab the pillow and put it over my face and I'm screaming. I'm vomiting my sins to God. I'm saying, dear God, what have I done? What am I that I could do something this evil to so many people? And I prayed forgiveness for the people involved. I prayed for repentance for what I've done. I, I confessed every sin I ever could think of since I was about three years old. And I finally said to the Lord, I said, Lord, I've shown the world what I can do with this body and this flesh and this life. You take it from the very top of my head to the bottom of my feet. You take it and show the world what you can do with it. And if you, if you look in the book, you'll see from that moment on, miracles took place within within one year of that conversation with God, things started happening that I was even blown away. I, yeah. I couldn't believe what, what God was revealing during that time. And, um, and then I ended up uh, becoming closer to him yeah. as I sacrificed my soul and wanted to give it, give it to him to use for his glory. Yeah. TJ, we so appreciate the, your story and your willingness to share it again. This is TJ Stevens. Uh, his new book comes out just today called Once a Shooter, Redemption of a High School Gunman. You can get it at, at uh, 
www.regnery.com. Uh, that book today. TJ, I'm just uh, with a couple minutes we have left. I'm wondering uh, somebody out there who is in the spot where you found yourself. Maybe it's a parent who has a kid and they see some of this in their student, or maybe it's a student right now hearing this. Uh, could you give them just either a word of advice or even more than that, a word of hope right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe in our culture for far too long, we've been treating the symptoms and not the real disease. And the disease in my life was sin. And the disease in your life is sin. And how you have to understand that there is a God who loves you, even in your sin. He will never, he will never walk away from you to the point that you make that final choice. You need to seek God through, it could either be a counselor, a youth pastor, um, a neighbor, somebody who loves Jesus, find them. And, and, and trust me, the Lord's going to lead you to that person. If you, if you seek God, he will draw near to you. And that's what my plea to you is. That's the whole reason why I wrote this book was for those kids, for those people who think there's no hope. There's nowhere else to turn. There's so much. You see, the appropriate response, the, the appropriate response to brokenness is from sin, right? So if you, if you are broken, you, you can reflect to the sin that brought you there mm. and realize that there's a God waiting, standing right before your sin, waiting for you to confess it and give it to him because he took it to the cross. He mm. took it to the cross just for you, for, for you to understand that you are loved and you don't have to continue this path of hurt, of hate, of all these decisions and things that's been done to you. All the, if you were a victim in some way and you just broke it, um, God is, 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 he wants to comfort the broken, you yeah. know, and he will listen. We've tried everything else. If I'm talking to a child in front of me right now, we've tried everything else. The world has tried everything else. Why not give God a chance? Hmm. Why not look to him for the answers? Yeah. Because yeah. every one of them has written his, his book, his letter of love to you in the word of God. Mm-hmm. And that is the weapon of choice that I have today. Mm. That is the weapon that I conquer mountains and 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 seas before me at this point. And and so, yes, that's the whole goal of this book is to reach kids just like that because the suicide rate for teenagers are just out of this world, mm. and they think there's nowhere else to turn. My hope is prayers back in school. My hope is putting putting uh, God back in our public locations. Uh, even even chaplains in public locations to understand that's what this country is founded on, this biblical principles. And that's what we have to get this world back to God. Mm. Especially it starts in our home, right? With our family. Yeah. And um, if they can't, if you, if you're, if your parents are not of God and they kind of live a life that's out of, you know, lead them, become the leader in your house. And it, it, that's, that's how you really become, uh, more mature in the faith is is find the calling God has in your life because if you could see what He has for your life and the purpose He has for you, yeah. it would just you couldn't fathom the gifts and the joy that He has waiting for you. Absolutely. Well, so, TJ, we, we are say, hope. Yeah. 
Well, TJ, we're so grateful for uh, that is a powerful testimony. If you've been listening, uh, you can pick up TJ Stevens' new book, Once a Shooter, Redemption of a High School Gunman, in which he will go much more in depth to his story and really the story of redemption and the amazing things that God has done in his life. Again, that book uh, comes out today called Once a Shooter, Redemption of a High School Gunman. TJ Stevens, we are great, uh, really grateful for the time you've taken. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, man. God bless y'all. Thank you so much for having me. You too. You too. And you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. As a reminder, you can find all of our stuff on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk, online at 1160hope.com. And you can get our podcast wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, Ian, I know on our Facebook page, one of the things that you posted today uh, was about our friends at Thrivent. So why don't you let us know a little bit more about Thrivent? I sure have, and I sure will, Brian. So Thrivent.com is where you want to go first. So uh, I've been a Thrivent member for eight or so years. They're a Fortune 500 non-for-profit that's been around for like more than a century, which is impressive because I've not been around that long. Brian, have you been around that long? No, you not haven't been close. around that long. That's no. impressive, and uh, I just appreciate them and their outlook and their approach to money and generosity and all those things. I encourage you to check out action teams if you want to get like a little taste about what they're, what they stand for. But if you're looking for a career change, thrivent.com slash careers is also a great place to go. And maybe you're thinking, well, I don't have a, a background in finance. That's actually more than okay. If you just like come alongside people and helping them be wise with money, thrivent.com slash careers might be a really great place to check out. Plus thrivent member network, Chicagoland region has a whole host of events and webinars there's an article we shared a little bit earlier today. Just uh, It's all just really helpful content that they provide for free to kind of help us all navigate this really strange season. And I am personally super grateful for them. Yeah, certainly a great organization that we encourage you to check out. So at the Gospel Coalition, uh, I, I love their content and I also love how often they do lists. And so we're going to do a Gospel Coalition list here. Uh, but something that I think is really increasingly timely, and that's this, Matt uh, Smethurst wrote, Four Ways Not to Be a Jerk Online. That, that title pretty much says it all right there. Uh, four Ways Not to Be a Jerk. So we get before we get to the four, let me read his introduction. <clears throat> he says, the internet can be exhausting. Amen to that. And that's <laughs> on the good days. He says, the pull, the pull of our screens and the interactions they mediate is often more spiritually taxing than we realize or care to admit. I've yet to hear someone return from a digital fast and say, wow, that was terrible. <laughs> Usually it's more like, wow, I feel human again. Right. Scripture, right. scripture calls us to, quote, honor everyone. First Peter chapter two, verse 17. Obeying that command has never been easy, but it has uh, ever been harder than in our social media age. Thankfully, God's word gives us guidance. And he says, then here are four ways to be faithful Christian online. Before we get into the four, have you ever done a social media fast? And, and do you find him correct to come back and be like, no, I really kind of enjoyed that. Oh, yeah. I mean, before I was married, it was a militant once a week, 24 hours. Oh, wow. Uh, every week, unplug everything. Um, and then once a month, I would do a 48-hour social media fast. And then twice a year, I tried to do like a 72 hour or longer total fast from any of that digital communication stuff. It was really, really helpful. 
That's interesting. I remember one year for Lent, I went the whole time without social media. And the first couple of days, I was, it was like withdrawal trying to find like, you know, like, oh, where's the app? Oh, wait a minute. I delete it. But after a couple of days, I was like, I'm really enjoying this, which it does. Raises the- there is a withdrawal moment, though. And everyone, everyone says the same thing. I, everyone's yep. window is a little different. But like once you get past that first couple of day, you'd even mentioned like when you went on sabbatical, the first like yep. week or two, you're still kind of like unwinding from the work and the temptation to post and tweet and all that. But eventually you get on the other side of it. And I I think he's spot on. I've never heard someone do something like that and then go, that was a waste of time. (laughs) What I too much free time now. (laughs) The worst. So at this article now, he's going to give us a list of four because most of us are going to spend time online and on social media. So here's his list of four ways to be a faithful Christian online. Number one, I'll take number one. He says, take, uh, take words seriously, parenthetically, take typed words seriously. Most believers are aware that scripture has a lot to say about the power of words. The passages are numerous. We know them. They're neither confusing nor obscure. Proverbs 18 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Matthew mm-hmm. 12 says, you'll give an account for every careless word. Ephesians 4, let no corrupting word come out of your mouth, but only mm-hmm. what's good for building uh, each other up. Do some of us still harbor the idea that typed words are somehow less direct, less real than spoken words? Hmm. Surely Jesus won't subject them to the same scrutiny. Twitter's too trivial for Judgment Day, right? <laughs> the reality is that when we stand before King Jesus, our online selves will also be held to account. Our online selves are our real selves after all. Oh, boy. I might challenge that last sentence, but the <laughs> idea, though, of giving account to our online selves, that's pretty humbling. Yep. Uh, number two, humanize the other tribe. I will, as a quick aside, I don't know that we should be saying tribe anymore, but yeah. that's maybe a segment for another it, day. It so may be says, time to put that one away. Yes. Right, right. In his book, How to Think, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds, and then there's 20 quotes, Alan Jacobs reflects on the human tendency to be constantly clarifying and widening the chasm between our previous opponents and ourselves. We depersonalize in order to delegitimize. Hmm. Mm. We stand before King Jesus. Our online selves will be held to account. That's the quote from your section that I shouldn't have read. (laughs) Uh, I I, I thought I'd take a risk there, Brian. The formatting got me again. He says, uh, yet such social habits come at a steep cost and not just to our enemy, Jacobs observes. We lose something of our humanity by militarizing discussion and debate, and we lose something of our humanity by demonizing our, oh boy, interlocutors. Couture's Inter- interlocutors, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I always feel better when you also don't know what the word is. Yes. This is the danger of reading sight unseen. When people cease to be people because they are to us merely representatives of or mouthpieces of positions we want to eradicate, then we, in our zeal to win, have sacrificed empathy. We have declined the opportunity to understand other people's desires, principles, and fears, and that is a great price to pay for supposed quote victory in debate. That's real good. That really is. Number three, give the benefit of the doubt. Jesus's words in Matthew seven, whatever you wish that others others would do to you, do also to them are so familiar that they're easily forgotten. But the golden rule uh, is, in effect, each time we pull out our phones, one of today's most insidious temptations amplified by social media is to slander and to shame. Why assume the best? We quietly think. Why not pile on? It's not like they know me. Hmm. Uh, Plus, there are retweets to be had. The word slanderer appears 34 times in the Bible as a designation for the devil. He is the great accuser. Mirroring his methods on social media is not unfortunate. It's not mistaken. It's satanic. Don't, don't read that Ooh. quote, Brian. It's the same words. 
<laughs> Slander is a form of vandalism, too. It defaces God's property. Crafted in God's image, every person possesses infinite dignity and worth and should be treated as such. This can be easy to forget when scrolling through a comment section or staring at a little headshot, but pixels can never shrink personhood. Our online interactions must reflect this fact. All right, you do the last one. Number four, and I can't believe the Gospel Coalition is using this word, encourage liberally. <laughs> Sorry, I can't stop. I can't stop today. The Bible, is filled, the Bible is filled with summons to give, to serve, to sacrifice, to lay down our rights, but one command is unapologetically competitive outdo one another in showing honor Romans 12:10. So, how are we faring in this competition? Biblical encouragement is a rare currency these days, therefore it's deeply valuable. Assuming the best, seeing the best and identifying the best in others to the praise of God's grace isn't natural for self-absorbed sinners like us. It requires self-forgetfulness, but it showcases a more excellent way. The Puritan Thomas Watson once said that a humble Christian studies his own infirmities and another's excellencies. If we reverse the order, stuttering, studying our own excellencies and another's infirmities, we will likely grow a platform. We might just lose our souls. Ooh, that's pretty good. This is good. This is good. This is at the Gospel Coalition. We have it up at our Facebook page, Matt Smithhurst. Uh, four ways not to be a jerk online. We'd encourage you to find that at our Facebook page, The Common good radio show. Well, the first hour is in the books. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, all that discussion about statues coming down. And what do we think about it? Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, Ian and I are going to talk about all the statues coming down across our nation. And then we're going to talk about a Christianity Today article about the basics of reading your Bible. You're listening to The Common Good. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, again, find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, online, 1160hope.com. Uh, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, Ian, the longer we do this show, the more, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you feel this way, the more I feel about myself, I, I see the ruts that I get myself in, kind of like preaching, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a new rut for you that I'm in. It is coming back and saying, hey, friends, like I'm Jim Nance. <laughs> oh, I mean, there are worse ruts to have than being friendly and kind. I know. Can you it imagine is, someone just, talking trash about you? Like, oh, that from, he's always calling me friend and saying, how he's are you? Saying, Whoa, he's he's, he's just stuck in a rut right now. What was you told the story was I remember laughing. What was the rut you had early on in preaching or my is, is this someone else I'm thinking about? Oh, I had at least 30 I could rattle off right now. I don't know. I don't know if it was me you were talking about. I had a What's your favorite one? <laughs> what, what, what was your favorite one? None of them are my favorite. They're like <laughs> obnoxious. I used to say um, like right off the bat. I used to say that a lot. Oh, so right off the bat. What's going on here in Galatians three is blah, 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 blah. <laughs> A lot of right, right off, off the bats. People are like, is this guy a big baseball enthusiast? I was not. Um, That's funny. My mine just like how I started here with friends. I've I've gotten to a rut of constantly in preaching when wanting to drive a point home going, brothers and sisters. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, that's that's a good one. That is not how you normally talk. It is not at all, but I, I regularly will throw in a good brothers and sisters in a sermon. And in my mind, I always think to myself, why did I say that? <laughs> I can't even really picture you saying it, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Listen to my next sermon. You'll hear it because now that I said it. So. Done. Done. Uh, 
Well, a big right turn here. One of the things that's been kind of going on now after the protests uh, are dying down, or they haven't completely died down. I was actually, you see them less on the news. My family and I, we stopped in St. Louis this past weekend on our way down to pick up our puppy in Missouri. And um, there were protests in St. Louis. And I don't know why it surprised me. I was like, oh, there's still protests going on. Uh, while we were there. But but now that they've died down, at least the coverage of them a little bit, one of the kind of the next things that has started happening, and, I, and I'm just curious, I don't know exactly the point I'm even looking to make, just kind of have a discussion about this, is that uh, there is uh, a movement with a lot of people to literally take down statues uh, of people um, who may uh, have questionable been questionable backgrounds. Maybe they were slave owners. Maybe they had like questionable uh, backgrounds. That's that is other stuff too. Very, uh, very stuff too, but, uh, And now last night, I believe they were trying to, a group was trying to pull down the statue of Andrew Jackson. I believe it was outside the white house. Uh, and they were um, physically stopped by the police. And today, Donald Trump, president Trump called for arrest and prison time for vandals targeting monuments. He said, there will be no exception. So you see a lot of monuments, not just coming down, but also vandalized, um, you know, spray painted on or whatever else. And when I'm watching these, I did this to you yesterday because it's it's another subject I want to bring up where I go, I don't know what to think about it. And I don't know. Uh, sometimes I look at it and I go, yeah, that's good. That makes total sense. And other times I look at it and I go, ah, I don't know. It feels weird that now we're tearing monuments down and we're kind of changing history. And so I don't know what to think. So I'm curious, Ian, as you watch this kind of stuff, uh, kind of what are some of your thoughts? Before before I offer those, I'd love to know which moments make you go, ah, I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, I think it's the – it feels a little bit um, – I think the totality of the number of monuments that are coming down, uh, some of them that seem to be uh, done – uh, who is it? I'm going to I'm going to really show myself to not be a good history buff. Uh, but is it Ulysses S. Grant, who did a lot to help free the slaves, but they were trying to tear it. His monument was getting torn down. Uh, somebody tweeted yesterday that uh, uh, images of white of Jesus as a white man should start getting torn down. Uh, so it's kind of more the totality for me uh, of going. I don't know where it stops and I don't know who gets to decide which ones come down. Uh, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't come down. This is what I mean when I tell you I'm really torn on this and don't have a great answer. Okay, so it's, so some of it is just the sheer numbers, not necessarily that it's the wrong monument in your mind being torn down, or is it both? A little bit of both. Some of them I've been okay with, but uh, I would say the sheer volume. For me, it's uh, I don't always think slippery slopes are a good argument to make philosophically. Like It's not always a good argument, right. uh, but it does apply a little bit here like where does it stop who makes the decisions and so um yeah i i would say it's it's more the totality for me right now okay um yeah a couple of thoughts one i mean you use the phrase erasing history i i don't think that is a good argument we have plenty of places where history is preserved that don't need to be statues and monuments honoring, honoring the person we mentioned a couple weeks ago how when my brothers and I were in Munich, you know, and they have these like they call them like hidden monuments where it'd be like one discolored brick or like a small square on the side of a wall that were meant to serve as reminders of the horrendous atrocities that, you know, took place in their own country. But there there wasn't these Nazi statues. And I'm not I mean, again, I got gotcha. to say that, like to tear a statue down is erasing history to me. 
we've we've never I've never heard someone prior to this conversation, this cultural moment, mention statues as our primary vehicle for education and history remembrance. We have museums, we have books, we have films, we have I mean, we even have um plaques and things named certain things, which is another part of the discussion. And the white Jesus conversation is, again, it's a whole different discussion that I think. Oh, we'll have that one day for sure. Yeah, I think it might have more validity than people might think. But yeah, to me, I I don't know. There there it is odd. It seems like what a lot of people have issues with, like you were saying, the word you used was totality. Like, ah, it's just so many. I'm like, well, also, though, does it kind of show how many statues that fit this very troubling category we currently have? Like that should also alarm us i think like well they pulled down how many that seems like too many like i would say that's maybe too many of those statues to have erect in the first place Hmm. i want you to hear from senator tim scott a senator from south carolina he did an interview on fox news uh and he talked about this very issue let's listen to senator tim scott I'm not, actually, personally. I think we could have a robust debate about how to deal with our, the renaming of some military bases. There's some things that we can have a serious debate about. But this desire to purge all of history because it was ugly or negative really does not serve the American people well. I go right back to the Selma Bridge, which is actually called the Edmund Pettus Bridge, because we preserved the reality of how vicious people can be by keeping it named the Pettus Bridge. That's why it was so important to see President Obama and President Bush standing together in unity underneath that bridge to reinforce the fact that in America, all things are possible. In America, we may have flaws, we may have challenges, but we get it together and we come together to overcome those challenges. And that's why I think oftentimes preserving the history as ugly as it may have been can be a sign and a symbol of how good it can be. And if we want to do something, why don't you put up a statue to Booker T. Washington? Why don't you have a conversation about Washington Carver? These would be positive steps. Tearing down history for the sake of anarchy is not how we make progress in this country. It never has been and it never will be because we are the United States of America. So Senator Scott kind of goes the other way there a little bit in a little bit of an interesting way. I guess I'd close this out by by asking, do you think... Is this a uh, right and wrong issue or is this is there validity on both sides of the argument for you on this one? Oh, I don't I don't think we have enough time in this segment to get into the weeds there. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, speaking of things we don't have time, I actually read an article. We should do this one in the future um, because you said about the history books and talking about how do we deal with people like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson going forward, I think at the very least. This is a cultural crossroads that we're in right now in a good way. That's going to cause us all to wrestle. uh, And I think that we need to continue to do so. Yeah. Uh, Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about the death penalty, specifically uh, the federal death penalty that after nearly two decades is going to resume. We're going to talk about that next on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Grateful to have you joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, As a reminder, you can find all of our uh, content on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us online 
at 1160hope.com, on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And finally, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. That does help us. We are grateful for the many of you who do listen uh, by podcast and uh, hope that you're enjoying this show whenever it is you are listening to it. Um, well, something came up on my newsfeed that I saw that I thought we could discuss. And then at Christianity Day, they weighed in on this. But let me give the background. It says this federal execution set to resume after a nearly two decade hiatus. After nearly two decades, the federal government will once again begin executing criminals, the Justice Department announced on Monday. Four inmates convicted of murdering children are set to be put to death by lethal injection. The four murderers whose executions are scheduled today have received full and fair proceedings under our Constitution and laws, Attorney General William Barr said in a statement. We owe it to the victims of these horrific crimes and to the families left behind to carry forward the sentence imposed by our judicial system. Federal executions have been exceedingly rare in recent decades. Only three have taken uh, place since the federal death penalty was reinstated in 1988. One of those was Timothy McVeigh from the Oklahoma City bombings. Uh, In 2014, President Obama ordered a review of how the death penalty is applied in the U.S. Uh, And last July, the Trump administration announced that the review was complete and executions could resume. And so we'll stop there as background. Uh, I'm going to show my naiveness here. I didn't even know that the federal government... Uh, could execute people. Now, when it says McVeigh, that does make sense to me. Right. Uh, I don't, I was naive. I didn't even know that that was a thing. Did you? I, I did. Yes, sir. Uh, so you just needed to say, you just teed me up to say I'm smarter than you because I, no, I really no, did that. No, no, no. I have. Uh, no, it's my fault. That was my fault. Yeah, but I have yeah. odd interests. The fact that I knew it is not necessarily a, a badge of honor. It's, you know, it's okay. You, you know <laughs> things I don't know. <laughs> so at Christianity Today, at Scott McKnight's, uh, Scott McKnight's blog called The Jesus Creed, uh, he had a guest named by the name of Matthew Lynch uh, write an article just yesterday uh, entitled Timing, uh, BLM, and the Death Penalty. Why don't you catch us up and let us know what's going on on this blog here, Ian? Yeah, let me just read some of the beginning here. He says, the U.S. Justice Department announced last Monday that it will resume federal executions after a hiatus of nearly two decades, as you were just saying. The timing of this announcement in the middle of a nationwide cry for police reform raises questions about the motives for resuming this practice. But for many Christians, the death penalty is a biblical mandate. Many evangelicals appeal to the Bible's supposedly clear teaching on the death penalty to defend its ongoing place in the American justice system. Genesis 9 is key here since it seems to teach that God, quote, requires humans to take the life of a murderer in exchange for their deeds. Chuck Colson, founder of Prison Fellowship, the nation's largest Christian prison-focused nonprofit, declared that how that he now backs the death penalty on biblical grounds. Colson writes, the Noahic Covenant, Genesis 9, uh, antedates Israel and the Mosaic Code. It transcends Old Testament law per se and mirrors ethical legislation binding for all cultures and eras. The sanctity of human life is rooted in the universal creation ethic and thus retains its force in society. For Colson, Genesis 9 mandates the practice of capital punishment. It is a non-negotiable standard of biblical justice and a moral society depends on it. But Christians have good reason to leave Colson in the cold on this one. The case rests on shaky biblical foundations. And then he kind of gets into it. First, Genesis 9, 5 through 6 does not grant humanity power to exercise life for life punishment. Instead, it retains the right for God alone. Unfortunately, our translations often lead us astray. Here's the NIV. 
And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each human being, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by human shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God, God has made mankind. First, the thrice-repeated I will demanding an accounting refers exclusively in the Old Testament to the action taken by the one dispensing justice and not some delegated party. It describes the action of an avenger or a justice enactor against a perpetrator on behalf of a victim. Here, the avenger is God himself. It's as if God is saying, I myself will hold a murderer accountable. God doesn't outsource the dispensing of justice to other humans. This is consistent with God's role in Genesis 4, where he acts as avenger for Cain. But in this case, his justice uh, uh, proportionate um, and not sevenfold. Genesis 4, 15. I'll pause there. What do you think so far? (laughs) I found it interesting. Maybe I should have known this, that Chuck Colson, the largest a prison ministry guy would have been so pro death penalty. I would have, I would have guessed otherwise. Really? Um, I would have just, it feels like somebody working in the prisons would probably take a different view, but I guess I'm wrong on that. Um, you know, I think that I appreciate uh, the author here trying to land this theologically um, before saying, this is what I think necessarily. I, I think it's helpful uh, to kind of dig into the weeds here, right? He's going to get into the Hebrew here and uh, just kind of start parsing some words. Uh, but it really lies at the foot of it. Uh, is it God who who is the one to exact this, this sort of justice, or is it man who, exact, who exacts it on other men? And so I think this is really helpful. Uh, okay, I'll keep going then. Any teaching on the death penalty, he says, that doesn't factor in Jesus's teaching rooted in the Old Testament should at least give us pause. And another symmetrically arranged proverb that seems to draw from Genesis 9, 6, Jesus challenges us to consider what would happen if humans did take the divine prerogative of Genesis 9 for themselves. And then he, he goes on to say, the, uh, the intimate ties between racial justice and the death penalty are grounds for abandoning the practice. Recent events surrounding the death of George Floyd should force us to examine such practices in the United States. Convicted murderers are far more likely to receive the death penalty if black and far more again if the victim is white. Location also matters. He goes on to give some statistics of the nearly 1,400 individuals executed since 1976. About 1,000 occurred in southern states where capital punishment picked up the baton of Jim Crow terror. He goes on to say whites whites disproportionately favor the death penalty by 34 percentage points compared to African-Americans. And this number has stayed relatively similar for the last 30 years. Furthermore, one in nine of those sentenced to death since 1976 have been wrongly convicted and exonerated. And those are just the demonstrated cases. So he's going to give a whole lot more stats, make a very strong biblical case. I will say this. I don't know how much time we actually have left in this segment here, but uh, there's another book that Shane Claiborne wrote called, uh, what's it called? Executing Grace, How the Death Penalty Killed Jesus and Why It's Killing Us. Um, There are some really interesting stats and some food for thought. If you're someone who takes theology series, Christian theology and doctrine, the Bible seriously, I would recommend at least at least giving it a read because I, I think it, it might challenge some of your uh, your presuppositions about the death penalty itself. Absolutely. I think that one stat is the is the um, is the strongest one for me where it says, furthermore, one in nine of those sentenced to death since 1976 have been wrongly convicted and exonerated. And those are just the demonstrated cases. Uh, the fact that we don't have a hundred percent success rate, even if, even if you believe the death penalty is just, uh, the fact that some people who are wrongly convicted have been killed in our in our justice system's history, 
uh, has to be at least enough reason for you to give to give you pause <laughs> to go, man, like that. The fact that even one person could die in that way is is reason that maybe this isn't um, something that we should be supporting. And I would say as Christians, as you think about the death penalty, and this is, you know, I love the title of Shane Claiborne's book, as you said, they're executing grace. Um, we believe in a God that um, that redeems, that we believe in a God who transforms and um, that nobody is beyond his grace. And so it seems like um, you'd want to be able to, in that belief, say, you know what, uh, we're not going to we're not going to just discard people and kill them. So I understand where it comes from. But, man, I have a hard time as a Christian finding for myself. This is me personally. I have a real hard time finding justification for the death penalty. Well, and I, I didn't realize this. It says towards the end of the article that 54 percent of Americans still favor the death penalty, though the number has steadily declined since the 1990s. White evangelical Protestants overwhelmingly support the death penalty at 79 percent. Yet, as David Gushy notes, no political community appears capable of creating a system that can adjudicate murder cases with consistency and impartial Mm -hmm. justice. And trusting states with the routine power to kill their own people repeatedly has proven disastrous, spilling far beyond our own 140 errors in 35 years to systemic regimes of state killings. That that is pretty humbling. It really is. Read this at our Facebook page. Uh, These are the types of things that as Christians, we need to be wrestling with. And so we'd ask you to do that at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about Bible reading. And this particular article says, let Bible reading get back to the basics. We're going to discuss that next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. As a reminder, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. You can find our old shows at 1160hope.com and uh, find our content on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That is The Common Good Radio Show. Well, uh, Jen Wilkin at uh, Christianity Today wrote an article entitled, Let Bible Reading Get Back to Basics. The Best Tools and Strategies Are Deceptively Simple. As pastors, uh, we talk a lot about reading your Bibles, and so we're going to talk a little bit about this article. But before we do that, uh, Ian is going to tell you again about our good friends at Thrivent. Yeah, a couple of things. Thrivent.com is a great place to peruse. If you're finding yourself with some free time, I think you'll be impressed. They're a Fortune 500 non-for-profit, been around for more than a century. I'm a big fan, been a member myself. They've helped lead workshops. They've helped sponsor marriage conferences that we're putting on. They've just been incredibly, they're really wonderful at partnering with what the local church is already doing. And I've, I've really appreciated that perspective. Also, thrivent.com slash careers is a great place to check out if you're looking for a career change. And we're posting a lot of stuff on our Facebook page. They've been hosting a number of great webinars and storybook readings and instructions and resources just as a way to kind of give back. So I would encourage you to check out our Facebook page or check out their Facebook page to learn a little bit more about what they do. And uh, I personally am super grateful for them. Absolutely. Well, as I said, Jen Wilkin wrote this article about getting back to the basics of Bible reading. And before diving into it, I think, uh, I don't know if you feel like this as a pastor, uh, regularly feel like people ask me, I don't know how to read the Bible. I don't know where to start. And sometimes I, I just, I totally get that. But other times I'm like, just, you know, it's not that overly complicated. That's going to be her point here. But uh, is that a question you get from a lot of people? Just, I don't even know where to begin. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. That was a very quick answer on your part. It <laughs> <laughs> was, was a yes or no question. Yeah. I do. I do get that question. That is a valid point. That was a yes or no question. She writes, <laughs> it is possible to overcomplicate simple practices like a yes or no question. It's possible hmm. to overcomplicate simple practices that yield good things. Just as with cooking, so with reading our Bibles. The availability of online commentaries, lexicons, interlinear Bibles, and searchable databases can make us forget basic, tried, and true tools that serve us well. She says, consider then recovering these five simple utensils that may have gotten lost in the drawer amid so many ways to access and parse the scripture. So she's talking to the person who's like, I, I don't really know where to begin. I don't know how to read my Bible. She's going, hey, I've got, uh, let me remind us just of five basic tools uh, that are going to be helpful. So let's work through these five. I'll do the first one. She says, reading repetitively. We underestimate the effectiveness of repetitive reading in training us to follow the meaning of a text. It helps us identify ideas, names, locations, images, rhythms, or phrases, and we begin to see structures and patterns emerge. We never reach the end of its usefulness. For on each, for on each reading, new treasures are yielded from the text. One of the best and most neglected approaches to Bible study would be to read a book of the Bible from start to finish without attempting to analyze or apply it and then read it again and then read it again, reading repetitively. Is that is that the the end of that? There? <laughs> that is, yeah, that's the end of that one. <laughs> Reading repetitively. All right. Next is consulting a map. When J.R.R. Tolkien published his now famous Lord of the Rings trilogy, he placed in the opening pages an ingeniously simple tool that enabled his readers to enter into the story: a map of Middle Earth. And I remember that map very, very clearly. Actually, it is likely that a fair number of modern day Christians know more about the geography of Middle Earth than the geography of the Middle East. The appendices of our Bibles also contain maps to draw us into the setting and provide context. Knowing that the Ethiopian eunuch of Acts 8 made a pilgrimage of 1,500 miles enhances our understanding of his deep desire to know Yahweh. Mapping Paul's missionary journeys or Abram's travels adds to our understanding and reinforces our retention of these stories. And again, is assuming that people are reading physical Bibles, which we know seems to yep. be on a steady decline, but all of this <laughs> stuff is still available online, too. You can just search Oh, what were the journeys that Paul took? What was the yeah. what was the map like for the Ethiopian eunuch? These are things that I think are are helpful to look up, but we often don't actually think to do that. Uh, yeah, and I'm going to tell you this: I am a Christian and have never read any of the Lord of the Rings books or seen the movies. Can All right, that, you can do the rest of the show by yourself. I'm leaving. I can't. Like, should my salvation be questioned? <laughs> Not should. It currently is. <laughs> Number three, keeping a Bible timeline. When did the divided kingdom begin? When did Isaiah prophesy? When was the intertestamental period? When was the temple destroyed? Keeping handy a Bible timeline can help us place what we are reading in the proper historical context. It can also help us develop a sense of what themes are commonly addressed in particular eras or why a particular theme does not appear in a particular portion of the Bible. Consider making a bookmark to keep in your Bible that helps you learn and apply the timeline of biblical history to your reading. I'll never forget when I was in college, I spent a summer uh, wheaten in the Holy Land. So I spent a summer in Israel and Greece, and we were constantly going places where it was all about timeline and this and that. And I've never 
understood the Bible more than in that time because it was so front of mind and I miss knowing those things so much. This whole concept of timeline uh, and maps and all this stuff certainly is really helpful. What do you, what do, you do to keep that stuff sharp? Yeah, if I, if, it, if I were just good at studying right now on my own, I, I could keep those sharp. You can get online. You can find all this stuff. Like you said, it's just a matter of doing it. Right. Yeah, this one's an important one. I, I'll often recommend this for people that are looking for a place to start comparing translations. If a phrase or sentence is hard to understand, compare it with several other translations. Online access to multiple translations makes comparison easy and accessible. Add a layer to your repetitive reading by changing translations for your later passes through a book. I do this in sermon writing all the time. There's all yeah. sorts of resources. Bible Gateway is super helpful in this regard. You can just see multiple translations, even if it's just one verse, seeing it interpreted and translated a number of different ways. Now, not all translations are created equal. I don't, we probably don't have time to get into that, but um, right. it is helpful to see side by side numerous ways of looking at a verse. Yeah. What, what translation do you, do you guys preach from? Like, Oh, we don't uh, have a person. we don't have a standard translation that we preach. You don't. Mm-mm. Okay, interesting. All do, right. Do you, do you guys have one? Uh, I tend to preach from the NIV, and we've got oh, Bibles. In, oh, we've boy. got we've got Bibles in the chairs that are NIV, so that's why I do that. So you're, you're one of those. Okay. Yes, I'm straight message. If I started another church, it'd be all message going. <laughs> Uh, Last one, checking a dictionary. A Hebrew or Greek lexicon is not always a helpful tool in the hands of those unfamiliar with the original language, but a simple English dictionary uh, can be a good service. When Paul encounters the proconsul in Acts 13, a glance at the thesaurus tells us that a proconsul is a Roman governor. When we read in 1 John 2.2 that Christ is our propitiation in the ESV, a dictionary clarifies that that is an atoning sacrifice. Even looking up common words like steadfast or righteous can help expand or challenge our understanding. And she goes on to, to end, when it comes to Bible reading, avoid overcomplicating the recipe. Rediscover basic literacy skills and read with renewed attention. Simple tools employed faithfully yield all manner of goodness. So with like the minute we have left, you know, I wonder when someone asks you, how do I start? I'm struggling reading the Bible, whether it's one of these five or just something that wasn't in this list. Uh, what's a tool you give them or an encouragement that you give to people who may be struggling to read the Bible? Yeah, there's a couple of things like we have a Bible reading plan uh, at communities. So our team puts together scripture readings five days a week that kind of pertain to the sermon from that Sunday. So I find that a lot of people find that really helpful because they just sort of learned about something for 25 minutes. So the juices are kind of flowing in that regard. So the fact that we create a reading plan and then offer just a couple of like prompts or questions. I'll often talk a lot about Lectio Divina too. The the simple like praying of scripture can be really helpful, but I often find, and there's a lot on you version that's super helpful that you just like, Hey, here's a five week starter just to kind of get you going, but linking things to what we're talking about on Sunday for a lot of people tends to be super helpful because one, it's something that their brains are already thinking about Two, It's something that like the whole church community is sort of doing together. So you feel like you're learning in community, even when we're all digital, which I think is super important. Yeah. So this article from Christianity Day, let Bible reading get back to the basics. You can find it on our Facebook page, the common good radio show. That is the Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show the way we do all the time with our interweb insanity. That's coming up next here on the Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. 
Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. That music can only mean one thing. It's the end of the show, and it's a little segment we call Interweb Insanity. This is a segment where our executive producer, Keith Conrad, he gives us five stories that he's found on the Internet uh, that are often funny, often crazy, uh, but they're always a surprise to us. And so that's how we like to end the show. It's a dangerous way, but we do it anyway. So, Ian, you get to go all the way to Thailand on this first one. I, just, I got a question for starters, though. Did you say Keith Conrad with a question mark, like a Ron Burgundy situation? I'm Ron Burgundy? Uh, Keith Conrad? <laughs> Keith Conrad? Our executive <laughs> voice got real high, and I was like, is he, is he not sure what Keith's last name is? Is that what's, is I that got what's going it. on? <laughs> That's speaking funny. Of, I didn't know. Speaking of names that are hard to pronounce, I'm going to not skip a single name. I'm ready. I'm going to try. You ready? I'm ready. I'm excited for this. All right. Thai vets perform mass sterilization as hungry monkeys terrorize tourist city. Thailand (laughs) has started sterilizing hundreds of monkeys in a city famous for its, oh boy, macaque (laughs) population as the coronavirus (laughs) pandemic leaves them hungry, aggressive, and wrestling food from terrified residents. Lapuri province and its 2,000 monkeys have have long been a draw for tourists from around the world typically feed them and pose them for selfies. But since Thailand closed its borders on April 4th to control coronavirus infections, the monkeys are not adapting well to the new normal. They're so used to having tourists feed them and the city provides no space for them to fend for themselves, says Supakarm Kauchkak, a government veterinarian. With uh, the tourists gone, they're more aggressive fighting humans for food to survive, she told Reuters. If I had a million if I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you a monkey. Haven't you always wanted a monkey? That was well done. That was well done. I don't think that's true. <laughs> Next one's out of New York State. I like how it says New York and then parenthetically state. <laughs> that is a helpful qualifier. 16 cases of meat fries stolen from Arby's restaurant in Niagara Falls. Someone stole 16 boxes of frozen food worth an estimated $1,500 early Friday from an exterior cooler at an Arby's restaurant, Niagara Falls police reported. Uh, Police said the theft occurred between 1.30 and 2.20 a.m. There was no damage to the cooler located at the north end of the building, prompting officers to speculate that employees failed to secure it when they closed that night. Stolen were seven cases of roast beef, five cases of corned beef, Two cases of turkey and two cases of curly fries. Arby's, we have the meat. I'm all of a sudden really hungry now. <laughs> I tried to think of a Niagara Falls joke. Couldn't come up with one there. Uh, my buddy played in a band called Niagara Fell. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That always made me laugh. All right. Out of Florida. Of course, the first word is dead. Dead iguana <laughs> being stored in freezer forces pizza place to close for a day. What? The next time you're in West Palm Beach, consider skipping the pizza at Pizza Mambo. <laughs> Done. <laughs> the Florida pizza restaurant had to close for a day because an iguana was found in a separate freezer. NBC Miami reports Pizza Mambo in West Palm Beach was forced to close for a day last week following the inspection by the Florida Department of Business and Professional Regulation. This restaurant could not be reached for comment. I wonder why. But an employee <laughs> told the South Florida Sun Sentinel that the reptile was given as a personal gift to the owner. It was stored in a separate freezer away from the restaurant's food and was immediately trashed after they were informed it was a violation. Yeah, I'm going to need you to go back in there and use some form of the word die. Dead, dying, mm. deadsies, deadwood. Mm. Your choice. So many problems with that story. Why was uh, a 
was the iguana gifted in the form of a frozen gift? Exactly. That is weird. Uh, oh, our home state. Here we go, Illinois. Escaped 45-pound to- tortoise wrangled in Illinois neighborhood. I hope this video. An animal control officer in a suburb of Chicago responded to an unusual call that involved her having to wrangle a 45-pound African tortoise. Morton Grove animal control officer Megan Glowox said she responded Friday to a report of a large reptile eating parkway grass on a residential road near the Walgreens on Waukegan Road. I probably had about eight families on the block taking pictures of the tortoise when I arrived. It wasn't afraid. It was just having a good grass meal and enjoying the sunshine. It was a very friendly tortoise. Glowak said she needed help from another officer to lift the massive African tortoise into a police car while she attempted to find the owner. The officer said the tortoise, named Betty, was reunited with her owner later in the afternoon. She said it turned out Betty had escaped from her owner's yard by digging her way to freedom. He's gradually getting away, Chief. Okay, now, Brian, don't go read this next one, okay? Don't scroll okay. down yet. Don't, okay. don't read it. Last but not least, California, 27 years later, this film is back on top. What film do you think it is? 27 years ago. That's 1993. Mm, I'm going with... I have not scrolled. Jurassic Park. Okay, you definitely scrolled. I didn't at all. Come on. Can any, is Am anyone I right? else in the room? Can anyone else verify that? Nobody can, but I nailed it. Now I yeah. just scrolled down. Coming from the guy that's repeatedly admitted on air that he would keep bags of money if found. <laughs> hey, come on. Now. I was in high school. This is right in my uh, wheelhouse here. <laughs> well, there's a new number one at the box office. And by new, we also mean old. Steven Spielberg's 1993 classic Jurassic Park nabbed the number one spot at the U.S. box no office way. for a fourth time in its history over Father's Day weekend, earning $517,600 at 230 locations. Reports deadline. It was followed closely by another Spielberg thriller, 1975's Jaws, which brought in 516. Well, that's really close. 516,300 <laughs> yeah. at 187 theaters. With the coronavirus pandemic still going strong, the vast majority of theaters playing the classic oh. movies are drive-ins. Reports the Hollywood Reporter. Indoor theaters aren't expecting to be open en masse before mid-July. Life uh, finds a way. Now that surprises me that that. Uh, I hadn't thought about that because of the drive-ins. Okay. All right. Wow, good well, guess. Glad- well done. Thank you very much. Well, we're glad that you joined us today. I want to give another thanks to TJ Stevens. Go out and pick up his book, Once a Shooter, Redemption of a High School Gunman. If you didn't hear his story, you can hear it on our podcast. Well, join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.